Welcome to the I Look Like a Doctor podcast, the podcast dedicated to interviewing physicians underrepresented in medicine to inspire the next generation. I am your host, Sarah Torres. On this week's episode, we have Dr. Crystal Jimenez and Dr. Miguel Alvarez Estrada. They are a married couple and family medicine physicians at the Scripps Mercy Chula Vista Family Medicine Residency Program. Dr. Jimenez and Dr. Alvarez Estrada are both Southern California raised. They met 15 years ago at UCLA during their undergraduate years, where they both majored in physiological sciences and were involved in Chicanos for Community Medicine. They attended medical school at UC Irvine and graduated from the Program in Medical Education for the Latino Community, or Prime Healthy for short. Through this dual degree program, Dr. Jimenez earned a Master of Science in Translational Research and Dr. Alvarez Estrada earned a Master of Business Administration. Dr. Jimenez and Dr. Alvarez Estrada couples matched into the Scripps Family Medicine Residency Program where they have been practicing full-spectrum family medicine, including obstetrics, inpatient medicine, and outpatient care through San Isidro Health, a network of FQHCs along the San Diego-Tijuana border. They have a shared passion for community medicine, border health, women's health, mentorship, and academic medicine. They currently are PGY4 co-chief residents and are both extremely excited to be staying at their residency program as core faculty this year. In their spare time, Dr. Jimenez and Dr. Alvarez Estrada enjoy spending time with their family, exploring San Diego, traveling, making and drinking coffee, and cuddling, and playing with their fairy pups at Rosy Frijol. Hi, Dr. Jimenez and Dr. Alvarez. How are you? We're doing well, Sarah. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for asking. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for inviting us. We're very excited. I mean, you both have, I don't even know much about your backgrounds, but I, and I'm so excited to hear more about it, but just like the fact that you two um, went to medical school together, went to residency together, like that's just so unique in its own. And I think that, and also, just given the fact they both are from underrepresented backgrounds in medicine. So, I mean, what a challenging hurdle to get over <laughs> and to like be in the positions that you are now. And then now with the news that you just, you know, shared with me a little bit ago that your faculty soon. Um, that's just amazing. Um, so with that being said, I would, would like to just hear a little bit more about your backgrounds. Um, whoever would like to start first. Definitely. And thank you for having us, Sarah. And uh, I know we we met years ago when you were an undergrad. So it's so nice to see you now as a medical student and to see things go full circle and, and what you're doing with the I Look Like a Doctor podcast. This is amazing. So thank you for having us. Oh, thank you. I think it's just very much needed, like so that everybody can like hear each other's stories mm -hmm. and know that like not every person's path is going to look the same and it definitely can be done mm -hmm. so so thank you so much for taking time out of your day to share a part of your story with us oh, of yes. course now let ladies go first do you want to show your background <laughs> first <laughs> uh so i was born in the san fernando valley in los angeles california uh, my parents are originally from mexico and uh immigrated here i have an older brother so we were raised in in the valley uh, with very strong, you know, work ethic and and conviction for for higher education. My parents always worked extremely hard to make sure that my brother and I had had a a good life and education. Um, and we moved eventually uh, to Diamond Bar, which is 
very different experience than living in the San Fernando Valley. And I think that move, that transition in my upbringing really uh, started to uh, impact the way that I saw society, right? The, the way that I saw how, you know, especially healthcare affected um, our, our community and specifically my family, seeing how uh, my family's, you know, personal health outcomes differed from, you know, the ones that were my family that was still living in the Valley versus us that we were fortunate to now have, you know, more opportunities and more resources. Um, so that, that kind of shaped my upbringing uh, through high school and now going into undergrad. I went to UCLA for college where I met Miguel <laughs> from day no. one there. That's where we, we uh, crossed paths. Um, and I think it was in college that I actually uh, internalized and and learned and realized all of these specific social determinants of health that have, have been affecting my family and have been affecting our communities that look like us. And through involvement with groups like CCM, Chicanos for Community Medicine, uh, I felt so fortunate to be able to participate in projects and and learn more about our realities in in medicine um from there i got connected to a lot of mentors and a lot of other programs that really guided me throughout the way i was able to work at all of you ucla through the emergency medicine department as a clinical care or clinical research coordinator it was an amazing time mm -hmm. working with that group there and uh, fortunately, eventually was accepted into medical school and went to UC Irvine as part of the Prime LC program, which was an amazing program in itself. And we could talk hours about Prime LC itself. Um, mm -hmm. And then from there, uh, matched into Scripps Chula Vista Family Medicine Residency, where we are now. Uh, and Miguel and I are fourth year chief residents and staying on as faculty next year as well. And I'm sure Miguel has has a similar similar story uh, after our cross path uh, or after our path crossed. <laughs> um, but I'll have him share his story. Yeah, like Crystal said, there will be a lot of similarities more so after undergraduate. But for me, kind of my background, I was born in El Grullo, Jalisco, which is a very small rural town in Jalisco, Mexico, where my parents actually mm -hmm. currently live now. They moved back. To live there permanently once I started college. So it's been about like 12 to 13 years that they lived there. And mm -hmm. I only grew up there for two to three years because at that time my parents permanently migrated to Monrovia, which is just a few miles east of LA. So I was about two, three years old when I first came to the US. And I am the youngest of four. So two older sisters and an older brother. And then my two parents who only got to second grade in their ranchito back in Jalisco. So yeah. they they just knew that if you work hard and you give it all you got, that's what they wanted to offer us, um, their children. So in coming to the US and what's the notorious and infamous American dream, they knew that if they, if they worked hard to provide for us, they really wanted to make sure that we had the opportunity to obtain a, a career. So from mm -hmm. day one that I can remember, working hard was always, it was kind of, <laughs> the expected and going to school and giving it our our hundred percent. So we grew up in Monrovia yeah. and fortunate to have my siblings as 
somewhat role models, but we amongst us four just kind of relied on each other because again, my parents did not know, first of all, English or what it was like to go to uh, middle school, high school, even apply to college. They, they were there though at all times to support us and motivate us, which I'm very, very happy about. And obviously along my educational route, working hard to also make money was very important. So I remember from eight, six years old, going with my tío, my dad, vecinos to work with gardening. And eventually I started to have my own little homes in our neighborhood where I did some gardening work for extra money. And also... I'm sorry. Uh, I'm so sorry. No worries. Oh, Is that my kitty. That's my that's cat. So cute. <laughs> I don't even know how she got in here. Okay, I'm oh, so sorry. No okay. worries. We have our two dogs, which yeah. which they are always growling. So no worries. We completely understand. <laughs> oh, uh, we should have ended that part. I'm sorry, but you want to pick up No, 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 no. That's totally fine. It makes it more interactive and, yeah. and exciting. Your cat wants to participate too. <laughs> Yeah, she's like, what are you doing? Who are you talking she to? She felt my pain of, of working in the in the garden. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was that was my early childhood, working hard while still going to school. And I actually had an inter- interesting transition because from mi- middle school to high school, living in Monrovia, I actually moved to Rancho Cucamonga, which is in, in some ways similar to Demonbar, very affluent, very great schools, very different neighborhood from where I grew up. Um, during elementary mm-hmm. medical in middle school and it was this interesting trade-off because we lived on top of a barn where my dad's boss offered free housing for us and that's how we were able to actually oh. afford living there but it came with the kind of trade-off of working their their barn taking care of the horses cleaning mom was cleaning their huge home that was like her full-time job but very fortunate because obviously the high school was or prepared me very well. That's where I learned what SAT was. That's what I learned. That's where I learned what and what the process was to apply for college through all the other um, my classmates. So that put me in a very, very fortunate position to prepare me for college, which is where I was then accepted into UCLA. And during that transition, my older siblings, all three of them, um, in what we call in Spanish, se fueron de la casa. Or they left home <laughs> without permission. They eventually had their own families. But now we're all together. But that was a stressful period because I started to see my siblings just leave home. Some went to college, some don't. <clears throat> many, many uh, family challenges that I that I faced. But I stuck around with my parents until I got into UCLA. They saw me there for the first quarter. And then afterwards, me being the youngest one and all the kids leaving the nest, is, um, as, as they say, they, they moved back to Jalisco. So that was challenging mm-hmm. during undergrad because I was very close to my parents, more so my mom. And her leaving, I just felt so sad being a little chiquiado de la casa, little spoiled of one. Course. So <laughs> yeah. I that but that though <laughs> left me with the motivation to just continue working hard from from day one as to how they taught me. And I still I stayed connected with them throughout undergrad. Again, fortunate to have a good social group with crystal and similar classmates that i identified with that looked like me in similar paths and to be honest that's what kept me going during college and developed this strong network mentors organizations because otherwise being alone especially in in a large university it is extremely overwhelming those four years were very challenging which we can chat in a little bit about but uh again i met crystal from day one september 2006 and now we're 
14, almost 15 years later that we've known each other and got through undergrad together. We uh, were both um, accepted into UCI Prime LC. And Prime LC is Program Medical Education for the Latino Community, which is at Irvine. Interesting, though, I did apply one year uh, before Crystal. So I was a first year when she was completing her postback program. Then when I was a second year med student, that's when she was a first year. So throughout medical school, we were a year apart until the master's year where we kind of caught up since I did a two year MBA and Crystal did her one year master's. From there on now, it was nice because we were finally on the same page. We were able to couples match into our family medicine program at Scripps Chula Vista. Residency for three years and now fourth year chief together. So it's incredible that we all, after all that we've been through, both as initially as friends, then as a couple undergrad medical school residency chief here and now as future faculty, uh, faculty it's we've learned so much about each other, so much personally as a couple as professionals in the medical field. So it's been an amazing opportunity with nothing that I look back and regret and just just so fortunate. Very long answer. <laughs> no, that's like, you touched on so many like important topics I think that I wanted to kind of like delve into. Okay, so like the first one I wanted to touch, touch on is like, you know, our upbringing, or at least like I kind of grew up a little bit similar to, to you um, in the sense that I like my parents also immigrated here and they, you know, do everything that they, they did everything they can. They still do to provide for us financially to support us in every way that they can. But at the end of the day, you know, they send us to school, but they don't know, you know, what, what does it take to go to then an undergrad? Um, and then like, forget about medical school. We yeah. have to figure it out like on your own. And so I think that that was really, really great that you touched on how, you moving to like a more, I guess, affluent community um, is what actually helped prepare you to to apply to college and everything. And like in retrospect, when I think back on it, I was like, wow, like I think I was just fortunate <laughs> enough, like in the fact that like I applied to one school. Only. <laughs> I only applied because I didn't know. I didn't know. I applied to um, California State University Fullerton. And at the time um, they had like a um, I guess like a connection with Catella High School, which is in Anaheim. Um, and basically, if you had like a certain GPA, a certain score on your on your standardized exams, like you were basically mm -hmm. an automatic in. And like just thinking about, I was thinking about that as you were speaking, and I'm like, wow, like I, I really, you know, am fortunate that I was able to go and then just kind of like figure it all out while I was in college. Um, and it, I, I am sure that there is like a lot of students out there that probably share that same sentiment um, and the fact that they have to figure mm -hmm. it out. And like, I guess I, what I also wanted, wanted to go into there, like what, what how did you start to kind of like figure it out in undergrad? Like you said you found mm -hmm. your tribe and how did you do that? I think in part it was um, some opportunities that were brought up to us you know, out of fortune, I think, like you've been mentioning, I think that's a common thread in all three of us, that that we've had those fortunate opportunities uh, to to have, you know, more resources or more help. So I think on one end was taking those opportunities whenever they were faced in front of us. The other was literally mm -hmm. and proactively looking for people that looked like us and that that spoke our language, mm -hmm. that came from communities that we came from. And that felt so comforting to find friends 
and to this day, lifelong friends that we still um, try to keep in contact with and try to share our successes. But those friends that grew up in similar neighborhoods, similar households, similar backgrounds, similar immigrant stories, you know, and I think regardless of whether we were all, you know, um, from a certain background or not, but we were all, we all had that common thread that we, we had struggles in our families in some shape or form. And now we're all in college and, and we're all, you know, the pride of our family in some sort. And so that, that community that we built with our friends helped us stay accountable to each other so that we could still stay accountable to our families in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And the third thing I would say was being proactive and searching for those opportunities, whether it was work, volunteering, um, or community outreach that we were missing. Um, because one thing that I noticed when I started college is that the academics itself was extremely difficult for me, especially coming from yes. uh, high school, which I thought I, I came well-prepared. You know, I feel like we all feel well-prepared after graduating high school, and it's such a milestone in our life and a milestone for our families to graduate high school that we feel, wow, we made yeah. it, you know, we're on top. Yeah. And then I got, <laughs> I got to college and that was a rude awakening for me that college is yeah. you know filled with, with the best of the best as well. And it's very rigorous, very challenging. And you feel like a small fish in a big pond, you know? And, and mm-hmm. so on one end, academics and the logisticals, studying and going to class and going to um, work groups and study groups. To me, I know that was my role as a student during that period of my life, but it didn't fulfill me. What fulfilled me was talking to others, going out into the community, volunteering, mentoring high school and elementary students. That for me was what I really loved. And what I realized in college Mm -hmm. was going to pull me forward. So while I was trying to focus on my academics, which is, you know, the important thing, you're a student and first and foremost, you want to focus on on your grades so that you have that academic foundation, but find what fulfills you because in the end, that's what's going to give you wellness and and appreciation for, for what you're doing in that moment. So for me, it was finding groups like Chicanos, for, uh, Chicanos or Latinos for Community Medicine. Um, Latinas guiding Latinas. Um, you know, we were part of of other uh, medicine and STEM groups for underrepresented minorities mm-hmm. at UCLA, and all of that really helped us form that accountability in that community, and ultimately helped mm-hmm. fulfill our needs as students while we were there at UCLA. And in turn, I think it ultimately yeah. helped me better my grades too, because once I felt happy in what I was doing and I felt connected to my community, then I would go back to class, feel extra motivated and be like, wow, I just went to a health fair. I feel so good. I connected with my community. I met amazing people. I'm going to come back to my class and I'm going to do the best that I can in my class so that I can move forward and Mm -hmm. ultimately accomplish that dream of mine to become a doctor so that I could come back full circle to it. Right, right. 
No, and that's that's completely true. And, and the reason why I asked that question, and I'm so glad that you touched upon like the organizations and such and like finding finding what makes you happy, connecting with your community and finding mm-hmm. your purpose, right? Because that's ultimately what's going to get you through not only undergrad, um, but also mm-hmm. medical school. You got to hold mm-hmm. on to that and residency. Like it's the training just only exactly. gets harder um, along this path. And so you have to like find that and hold on mm-hmm. to that. Um, and so I talked to a lot of like pre-medical students and it makes me so sad sometimes when I, when I talk to them, they're like, you know, I just feel so alone and I don't know what I'm doing. And, and, you know, and I can completely empathize with that because I, I, I feel that I was there once before and I know what it feels like. Um, So then I, I always kind of like talk about the academics because like you said, yes, it is important, you know, metrics and everything with medical school and applications, it is important. So you know, getting that plan all down. But then after that, like talking about like, okay, well, what kind of organizations are at your school? Like, are there any community health organizations that you would like to get involved with? Like, let's talk about that. And so, and and oftentimes like, they're like, oh, I didn't even like think about Mm -hmm. that. And I need to come and like, look at these things. And I'm like, yeah, like, you know, like if this is, this is what you want to do. This is kind of like how, how you need to go about it and how you need, how you can, you know, do it for not only for, for your application and all that, but like wellness exactly. and to be committed to, to, to what you're doing. Um, so I'm glad that you, you touched upon that a little. Um, I think from there, I would like to kind of touch also upon um, how your experience was in medical school. Um, like you said, you were part of the Prime LC program. So you kind of like found your tribe there or automatically just by, <laughs> by default, right? Um, by, by going into the program. Um, I also talked to a lot of medical students who like, let's, you know, say like they moved from like state to state and then automatically feel like they have to kind of like go through that whole process again of trying to find their tribe and find people who whose values resonate with their own. Um, and, you know, sometimes <laughs> there might not be enough representation of, of, of students like us or faculty like us. So um, I don't know if that's something that you've experienced um, in medical school or, or if you've worked with residents who kind of had that experience and then now maybe once they get come to your program and they think like, wow, like finally I'm mm-hmm. home, finally I'm I'm with my community and this is what I want yeah. to do. It's a really good point because again, going back to the uh, theme or idea of fortune, the, the fact that we got accepted into Prime LC was such a, fulfilling and like a happy moment because we we knew from the beginning that getting to this program was fulfilled a mission or aligned with our mission of how we envision ourselves as physicians in the future meaning serving Mm -hmm. medically underserved particularly latino underserved communities so having been Mm -hmm. accepted to prime lc even from day one which is that summer immersion component you are literally surrounded in, with your cohort, which varies in size, with people who got accepted into this program because their mission clearly aligned with that of the program. So we were we were assured and like so so happy that everywhere I looked, even if I physically identified with them or not, the fact that they were there for the purpose mm-hmm. of being trained to be physician advocates and leaders was so reassuring. So throughout the five, six years of medical school being part of this program, you, we were surrounded by people every day in, day out, who we knew were there for us, with us, and for our patients in our community. 
So that was that was something mm-hmm. that I think made the experience more pleasant and not necessarily easy, but more doable. Mm-hmm. And so when you add the, mm-hmm. the natural harshness of medical school rotations, exams, the fact that you're in this environment that is so supportive and warm and, and familial, like we call it la familia, it just makes mm-hmm. it that much more doable. Yeah. Yeah. Now, right. putting myself outside of that, if, if I did not have that support, I can only imagine that internal kind of um, not either fear or anxiety or desperation to look for that group that will be that will support you that mm-hmm. tribe. So there there have been many residents that went to medical schools where they literally did not have diversity, right? To be frankly honest, and yeah. so yeah. you either push through alone, which is not a good thing, or you literally find other people through organizations that will naturally um, mm-hmm. lead you and and make bonds with people who do feel or think the same to start developing mm-hmm. those groups because you at least need someone um, as a classmate, a mentor to get you through because medicine and the career is, is a team-based career. And so it's so important to start that way right. from day one. So I don't know if you've had heard exactly. of other applicants or medical students who experience that exactly i think it's it's more common than <laughs> than we speak of it um and it, again going mm-hmm. back to the the thread that we we were fortunate to be a part of a group like primal c but um i wish prime could be a part of every single medical school because i think ultimately it's needed everywhere to have that that Right. That commonality and that focus on underserved medicine and really reaching out to our local communities. But until that day happens, mm-hmm. <laughs> then um, we we really have to secure that that medical students and particularly you know students of color feel welcomed uh, and mm-hmm. uh, feel uh, needed and appreciated, so that we can retain and improve our numbers within our healthcare pipeline and workforce. Um, and I appreciate organizations that we've been involved with, like Latino Medical Student Association or LMSA, Student National yeah. Medical yeah. Association or SNMA. These are powerful national organizations that focus on uh, student retention and for you know training of physician leaders that come from back backgrounds like ours. So I think it's super important right. to find your local chapters or find your local groups to, to um, join and participate in their community outreach, participate in their um, policy and advocacy um, efforts. And that really mm-hmm. augments to, to the medical training that you receive. And one thing to add about too, oh, yeah. sorry. Is, no, is, that's, that's really that's great when there are pre-existing or existing organizations in the medical school, for example. But when there isn't, it's 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 much more mm-hmm. challenging. So one thing that we can encourage is, like Crystal was saying earlier, to be proactive and reach out to other states because mm-hmm. LMSA is, is nationwide. For example, SNMA as well, APAMSA, regardless of the organization, form those networks. And now that we have the pandemic, it made us really savvy in networking out virtually. <laughs> Right? Oh my gosh! <laughs> my quality of life is so much more. Exactly, we, we bond more through through all these virtual platforms. Yeah. But that way, you can maybe even start your own chapter. We've we've met many applicants in that are now residents 
who started an LMSA chapter, who started an SNMA chapter because it did not exist. And they identified that as a strength for not only their medical school, but also a sustainable thing for their well-being. So that's one thing that we do encourage. If, it, if, you, if you notice something is missing within your medical school or even undergrad, like gather a team or start with yourself and reach out to build your team to get to establishing it. Completely agree, 100%. Exactly what you said is actually what was my experience with it, because when I when I got here to the Midwest, um, to, to the Medical College of Wisconsin, there was an LMSA already established and SNMA as well. There just wasn't that many people in them because, again, you know, unfortunately, there wasn't that much that many um, um, Latinx students mm-hmm. in general. Because of that, there wasn't that much like much awareness of the organization in general within the school. And so then. In my class, there was actually a good amount of, of Latinx, you know, individuals in there. And so we kind of all got together and just like blew it up the most that we could our year um, as members and then the following year as executive board members. Um, and it just has like continued on. And then, like you mentioned, again, then with the pandemic, like we we always joke around like we went viral mm-hmm. because then we just started doing so many events like. Um, over Zoom and everything um, and to get like the student body involved. And honestly, like Zoom is just so much easier for a medical student than to having to like make that plan to like, okay, I got to go to school here. And like, it just helps you with like your time management skills. I feel much more. So I feel like the participation, even though it is over Zoom, it still Mm -hmm. is there. Um, And likewise, that's how I've seen it also, also with like the Midwest chapter in general and then nationally, like it's, it's such a great organization and I, I can say for a fact that it's definitely helped me uh, get through being here because I definitely did feel um, a little alone, I guess, like at first coming from Southern California, coming from always being around, you know, um, LMSA um, within UCI and then just in the Southwest region in general, like there, there's so many people that look like me and, you know, we all had such a great time together and you two yourselves like helped me, um, prepare for my for my interviews when I was interviewing for medical schools like I I don't know where I would be without those kinds of connections and so um, I guess like the point of me bringing up this thread is that it is super important to find find your tribe and to always like start off either with organizations or within your own community and like I guess you would just be surprised like where it takes you and that's so true And, and that mentorship is so important because we can all think of someone, whether it's a mentor in the field or not, it could be a family member, just someone that is guiding you throughout the way is vital. Mm-hmm. I, I think Crystal and I both share a common mentor yeah. and I'll mention his name, Dr. Marco Angulo, who many who are listening will probably resonate or, or recognize that name. Marco Angulo, I, we met during our undergraduate at UCLA when, when he, he was a medical student. Right? Yeah. And oh my God, yes, I didn't know that. He was. LMSA and it was at an LMSA conference where he gave um, at least me a mock interview um, and I like your experience if you have mm-hmm. one if, of your first experience with Marco but at that point I was kind of pre-med I literally told him uh, oh yeah I'm kind of pre-med I'm doing it just in case and he told me <laughs> just in case, <laughs> just in case I, I can make it <laughs> Wait, what was your other option then? What was the, it was like, that was your second option. Like, case, my case. other option was not being a doctor because in my mind, I thought it was impossible mm-hmm. because I, I, I did not identify many physicians in my community who would look like me. It was in my mind, expensive, in my mind, very long. 
a lot of those may be true, but then mm-hmm. ultimately I just did not think I, the way I identified with myself, that it was a feasible option. But then again, in under, in, mm-hmm. in high school, many people were pre-med, pre-med, their parents were doctors. And I said, I love science. I love teaching. I, let me try it out. So I went in pre-med. So after the mock interview, he gave me feedback and then ultimately asked me, so why do you want to be a doctor? And I'm like, well, right now I'm kind of pre-med. He's like, no, no, no. Do you want to be a doctor? Yes or no. And I said, I do. He's like, well, then you are going to be a doctor. And then that literally, like, I remember exactly where I was sitting at UCLA with Marco. And from that day forward, he gave me that confidence to move forward despite the challenge that I did face and also the successes. And thereafter, we, he maintained, uh, we maintained that relationship. He actually hooded us at our medical school graduation. Oh my goodness. Oh my so gosh. He's, That's like, a- <laughs> he's such a treasure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, how many how many lives he's exactly. touched just and that goes wow. to show the power of mentorship that really we it it's doable to do this on your own. I don't recommend this because <laughs> it's so important yeah. to have, you know, people that really love and support you and care for you along the way and that mentor you and guide you, right? Like Miguel was saying, whether it's formal mentorship or whether it's informal mentorship or a family member a colleague, uh, somebody that you look up to and that you could check in with and that helps Mm -hmm. guide you throughout your medical school or medical journey, period, right? And that not only helps give you tangible feedback and, and advice, whether it's, you know, applying to medical schools, interviewing skills, applying to residencies and all of that, but also gives you that encouragement and that push that we we all need at some point Mm -hmm. and it it just goes to show you know what what if we didn't have somebody telling us oh you will be a doctor don't doubt yourself then i don't know if we would have been in this exact position so it's so important for us to uplift each other so that we can perpetuate that that pipeline Mm -hmm. right and i feel like that's like honestly so rare rare to find even like like or at least that's my experience so far from medical school um to find physicians that actually do like uplift you and like support you even if they don't look like me just in general like like to have that support and so finding a mentor is like Mm -hmm. crucial um to get through just all the kind of hardships that you're going to face because they're going to come like whether it be your pre-med journey your medical school journey you definitely need that support system there to help you navigate those hurdles and and, everything, and don't so. be afraid also to, to ask that particular person that you envision could be your mentor. Ask. I know a lot, some of some of the times I myself am a shy extrovert. I, I my mind would be like, no, they're too busy. I don't want to ask if I can email them. So just it doesn't hurt to ask. And I, and I promise everyone is willing to help. And that's one thing that we encourage you all to do. That's actually a good point because I've gotten that a lot. And I myself, too, have been very shy to kind of ask. I remember... I was shy to ask both of you for help with like my interviews for interviewing. And you're right. The worst that people can say is no, but mm-hmm. what if they don't? That's no. So, uh, yeah, I completely agree. Um, okay. I would like to transition into talking maybe about some of the hardships that you might have experienced. And you can decide if you want to talk about whether that was in your pre-med journey, your medical school journey, residency, or if you have multiple that I think like stand out to you. 
Um, to, and the point of that being is just that I, I do want to demonstrate that this is not just like a cookie cutter and like straight path kind of thing. Like there's always going to be hurdles in the way. So um, if any come to mind, I would love, love to hear it. I think for me, I could start um, talking about academic struggles because I think that it's so common. I feel like we, a lot of us face this throughout our careers in general. Uh, like I mentioned mm -hmm. before, I graduated from a good high school and I was a very good student in high school and, um, you know, thought that I was going to do fine in, in college because of that. And once I started college, I realized that uh, the study skills that I had in high school were nowhere near what I needed to succeed in college. Uh, the learning curve mm -hmm. was so steep. The classes were huge. And me as an introvert, <laughs> found it very difficult to ask <laughs> for help and reach out and let alone talk to a professor. Never in my mind would that cross, <laughs> you know. And so yeah. I quickly <laughs> realized, especially with the quarter system, how things, uh, how weeks pass. Oh, oh, I'll wrap it. Yeah. I yeah. realized the hard way that I needed to ask for help ASAP because first year came mm -hmm. and I could not sustain my grades. I I was not getting good grades. Um, I was struggling. I wasn't retaining information and I just felt like this wasn't working out for me. And at that point, I I suffered a lot from insecurity and I felt mm, I last Last year, I felt so good going into UCLA, like I was going to uh, totally uh, accomplish this. And now I don't think I can. I don't think I could go through this. And I felt very insecure and, and doubted myself a lot. And I think because of that doubt, it still lingers till this day at some, you know, in some level or shape or form, or especially going through stressful situations. I still have that doubt a little bit. And I think that kind of goes into um, what I wanted to talk about, which is imposter syndrome, that that constant fear and worry that you're not good enough, that you're not where you're meant to be. So I always had that lingering thought in me going through college that uh, I don't think this is a place I'm supposed to be. I'm not doing well. I'm not learning. Um, but I uh, fortunately met friends and people like Miguel who just constantly uplifted me. And we would form study groups together. We would sometimes do all-nighter studying before finals and exams and you know, mm -hmm. writing papers together and, and having that company and support, I think, helped me so much uh, because then year three, year four of, of college, I felt way more comfortable in my skin and comfortable with what... Uh, what worked best for me in terms of study skills. And I really honed in on mm -hmm. them and practiced them and um, put in all the time and the effort that I could to um, succeed in college. Um, but at the end of college, my overall GPA was still not up to par, you know, to apply to medical school. And I did do a post-baccalaureate program for two years where I uh, took upper division science classes and that's when I was working at Olivier UCLA as well. Um, so I think that those heart, those academic challenges in college did um, did set me back a bit, and I did have to focus in on a post baccalaureate program to increase my GPA 
and be more competitive for medical school. But in the end, I don't regret it whatsoever because that that was a big growth in my journey um, to realize what what worked best for me logistically. And in the end, to improve my confidence, because now over a decade later, (laughs) I'm in a position where I utilize that same strength that I feel like I started developing in college through medical school when I also Mm -hmm. faced you know, those challenges. But in medical school, now what I realized was, oh, I, I got this. I, I already learned the techniques that work for me. So I'm going to uh, try these study techniques and see if it works. And in medical school, it worked. I did well in medical school and did well on, on uh, our exams and everything like that and, and felt way more confident mm-hmm. now applying to residency. So I think that personal growth really changed my perspective on myself and gave me more confidence. And for me talking about personal growth, I think one of the biggest challenges that I clearly saw in undergrad medical school, less in residency, but more so undergrad and medical school was with my, a lot of it was my personality. And I, I tend to worry more than I should. I think that's one of the areas that I would consider was one of my weaknesses, but acknowledging it is now Mm -hmm. actually uh, a good thing since I can work on it. But I remember from day one undergraduate, in my mind, I had this fear and I would tell myself, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail because obviously in your mind, you have no idea what college is like until you're actually there. And I envisioned the mm-hmm. worst of everything. And for that reason, I told myself in order to not fail, instead of saying in order to succeed, I would tell myself in order to not fail, I just need to study as much as I can. So in my mind, I programmed 24-7 mm-hmm. is study time, and I need to take away from that to sleep, take away time from that to eat, to see family. So I, I saw time in the wrong way, where I saw it as mm-hmm. taking away from studying, because if I didn't study, I wouldn't do as well, rather than seeing that time as my life and plug and study, family, mm-hmm. social time, whatever that was. So I learned the, the hard way in realizing that I needed a balance and we always use the term work-life balance and it's so real and it, it's not comprehensible mm-hmm. and you actually experience it or experience the challenges. But the good thing about me worrying more than I should was that I actually focused on my academics at full throttle from day one. I made sure that I studied all the time. My grades were not excellent, but they were decent enough where I was, I felt comfortable. But because of that, again, yeah. I didn't see myself having extra time so I didn't really explore extracurriculars I did do I did do work mm-hmm. study where I in working incorporated my passion of teaching and working with underserved communities so I worked in downtown LA with an after school program I eventually worked with tutoring but I still got to work as a form of um, income but still incorporated my mm-hmm. passion eventually towards the end of undergrad similar to Crystal more so around third year I developed that comfort of, okay, I, I realize I'm not failing now. I actually mm-hmm. enjoy more of myself, the experience, do what makes me happy, extracurricular. So it was this gradual transition throughout college. And even though mm-hmm. I learned that during undergrad, starting medical school again, my mind, medical school, oh my God, it's going to be the hardest thing ever. I'm going to fail. So I got to work yeah. hard. And first year, same thing happened, a little deja I should have learned, but... <laughs> It was also hard because at that point, Crystal was in her post and I was in Irvine during medical school. So we literally were 
relatively long distance, maybe an hour or so away, still doable, but mm-hmm. we were up, we were separated uh, distance wise. So that took me out of my yeah. comfort zone. It felt sad not being with her, even though we did four or five years together during undergrad. So that was a little challenge. <laughs> that that too taught me that I needed to realize that again, you're not taking time away from studying. You're putting time into your life to do blank. And you really have control more so somewhat in medical school. Even the third year, you, you'll, you realize that's where control can sometimes vary when you're in rotations. But make the time that you actually <laughs> do have, right? And those weekends off to do what makes you happy and do what makes you thrive. So that was a big challenge that I eventually got better at. And I literally feel that at the end of uh, medical school, I felt comfortable letting go of academics in the sense of I'm going to see my family. I'm going to go spend time with Crystal, et cetera. So that was years and years of learning on my part. And a lot of it, again, is my personality that I had to really adjust Mm -hmm. and work with. But residency, again, challenges are there. But that's where, again, we were Crystal and I were together. And even though we were in the same year, you're in different rotations from day one, I think I started on night clothes, so it was on days. Mm-hmm. So we just saw each other twice a day during summer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, literally one day, I remember I was on the way to work, uh, driving down the street, one of our common streets that um, we used to get to the hospital. And Miguel was driving back home. And we called each other just in time to realize that we were on the same street and got a glimpse of each other from the opposite side to wave. <laughs> so that, that day, that was our only interaction, was that wave crossing, you know, along that street. <laughs> but I mean, it, it is one of the challenges of, of being a couple in medicine, you know, because the, sometimes your schedule doesn't permit for, for that control, like mm-hmm. Miguel was saying. But I think doing, having done undergrad and medical school, I think we, not I think, we are able to understand ourselves even without saying anything or without seeing each other. You, mm-hmm. you know you can go home yeah. and be quiet and we know why. We know you can, go, you can come home and then I'd be like, oh my God, today was so hard. I don't know if I did this right or wrong. Even though we're talking medicine, for us, it's our life. And I love that I can come home and feel, we can feel free mm-hmm. to sh- talk about anything work or not and and that's just yeah. so reassuring and so mm-hmm. comforting that I'm very happy about amazing um I wanted to so I do want to touch into like how it is with you two being a couple in medicine but I wanted to, to also touch, touch upon like the points that you you just made um Miguel like it sounds a little bit to me like so part you were saying that part of it is like your personality that maybe it was like a little bit of like I don't want to say like pessimism, but like maybe just like a the, the negative yeah. mindset, right? But I I don't know. Like to me, it kind of also sounds like um, it might have stemmed from a little bit of like an imposter syndrome or a little bit of like the fear of yeah. failure. Um, and so that's why you viewed it that way. Um, I don't know. Like that's what so do you true. Think? I, I don't think I knew what imposter syndrome was at that point, but it clearly was that <laughs> that in this huge institution, you had to work hard to out not out time but to survive mm-hmm. that was my mentality and again it, ucla is a diverse school however the latino african-american black population or percentage is still fairly low so that also added mm-hmm. to the imposter syndrome 
And also to me, my parents moved back to Mexico. And after all the years of being in the U.S., I told myself, if, if I don't succeed here, I'm failing my parents. Mm-hmm. So that was probably a lot of personal blame on my part as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the end, uh-huh. though, that imposter syndrome is so, so real, regardless if it's in yeah. the academic or in the hospital or work. But reminding ourselves that if we work hard and our heart is there, we cannot blame ourselves for what happens. But I think right. if you have that, success will come, although there are challenges. But those things that help us succeed, we need to realize what they are, mm-hmm. reach out to them, stick to them, and it will help us get through. I love how you both like touched upon how it, it didn't just, you're, you know, those feelings of like the fear of failure and the fear of like, you're not good enough. Um, like with you, Crystal, um, they don't just go away. Like you need like, like that, right? Like you need to take the time and like years to build that confidence and to feel like, okay, you know what, actually I do got this, like I can do this. Um, and I'm so glad that you like touched upon it and spoke about how and when you kind of like re- made that realization for yourself that, okay, it's, right. it's going to be okay. I'm actually, <laughs> Yeah, doing this exactly. um and like I, and i mean i i guess have like that similar experience too um especially like when i'm in my rotation sometimes i think um i think i, I align a little bit more with like crystal's description of it where i have like that doubt of myself and my abilities um and a little bit maybe of you too yeah where like that feel of failure and fear of like oh if i don't if i don't do this well then i'm just why am i here in wisconsin like this is all for nothing um and and I just have to like push through it. So it's like every time um, I do a presentation to an attending, I'm like, oh my God, like I just like pick it apart in my head. Like, is that even good enough? Like, do I sound weird? And oh, like, and I don't know if like anybody, any other students have that kind of um, analyzation of their own presentations like I do. But I think for me, like it just goes like so deep back into like how I was brought up and like, I want to make my parents proud, my family proud, my community proud. And so like, it just feels like so much weight on your mm-hmm. shoulders. Um, and sometimes I have to remember, okay, like I, I'm, I'm a student, right. I'm learning. Let me just yeah. take this off. Cause I don't need, I don't need all this pressure on me. Like just to come and do what you need to do and, and exactly. to get through it. And to add on to that, Sarah, I think aside from those layers of stress that you were talking about, I think also going through higher education, going through college and medical school, always needing to be, you know, better or needing to be noticed or, you know, look at my application. I'm applying to medical school. Like, you know, that that constant mentality of I need to get to some place. I need somebody to notice me. I need Mm -hmm. to get in. Um, Now, adding to that all the layers of stress that you mentioned and adding to that, that we are, you know, students of color and underrepresented. I think just made at least me personally feel even more behind to the point where I constantly felt like I had to prove myself, prove myself to me and prove myself to others. And Mm -hmm. now I'm Mm -hmm. at a point where I felt like I was rushing through that process, rushing through that mindset. And to this day, I still feel that I still feel like I have to overwork. We have to take more shifts. We have to do more work. If we get an assignment from somebody, yes, we'll take it, we'll do it, you know, say yes to everything. Because I have that, I Mm. still have that feeling that I have to prove myself. And now Mm. the challenge of this year as a chief is me realizing, oh, I've been good enough. We've been good enough. 
we, with all the work that we've done, we've proven ourselves and gone above and beyond. And so now Mm. it's more so looking after ourselves, looking out for our wellness, knowing when to say no and realizing Mm -hmm. if I don't do this small task, it's not the end all, you know, Uh, I've already proven myself and I've already shown my dedication to my patients, to my community, to my residency program. And so I am good enough and I've already shown that, that I can contribute as a good member of society and the same goes for Miguel. So now it's shifting that mindset that we no longer have to keep <laughs> proving ourselves. We, we are always good enough. So long as our heart and um, our mind is always there prioritizing our patients and our community, but now also prioritizing mm-hmm. our personal wellness mm-hmm. so that we could continue to do that work. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Because if you just keep adding on like projects and taking on tasks, I mean, when do you ever have time then for yourselves and um, to not burn exactly. out, basically? Exactly. Um, that is so true. And you mentioned burnout, which is uh, a very real thing that used to be very taboo. And now it is the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's what do you call it? Um, recognized nationwide, not only in medicine, but medicine is one of the areas where it's very prevalent. And so real, especially yeah. during uh, residency and even in medical school. But recognizing is the first step, which I think we all are doing nationwide. And now within programs, doing everything possible to avoid burnout. And a lot of times it's inevitable. But I think recognizing what things, at least personally, again, whether you're an undergrad medical school mm-hmm. residency, it doesn't matter when you realize something is just not right. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing how to ask for help. And a lot of times that's a big challenge because in, in our career, the mentality is you work hard and you just don't complain mm-hmm. and you just work, work, work. Mm-hmm. That's how medicine and the prior hierarchy was. And you hear other doctors, well, I used to work 150 hours a week. You guys only work 80. So this constant, this constant. <laughs> you guys have work hour restrictions back then. We literally were residents in the hospital. So in our minds, we're like, well, we have it easy, then I can't yeah, complain, I can't right? Complain. I, must, I must do it all. Especially with our backgrounds, too, coming mm-hmm. from immigrant families yeah. who always taught us, you know, you know, don't complain, work hard, you got this, keep going. Yeah. So we still have that mindset, okay, I won't complain, we have it good. Exactly. And I think that's what contributed a lot exactly. to a moment during my second year in residency where I, I clearly burnt out and I did not ask for help because that was just my mind my personality that mm-hmm. you don't you don't ask for help until other people yeah not did not ask me for permission if they could help they were like miguel we know something's wrong we are going to help you so i got help with call coverage and it was incredible to to see people that recognize when something's not right and that they help you and how much of a difference it makes and when someone does that for you you then realize mm-hmm. how you can then help someone else so us as individuals in this yeah. in this very rigorous but rewarding career, that's so important to recognize first yourself when you notice things are a little bit different and you might be reaching the point of burnout or your classmates, your family, somebody else. But that's so important and we want to make sure we do everything to avoid it. Could you could you talk a little bit about like what is it that they noticed in you that was different that maybe you didn't notice? Yeah, in and actually, Crystal was there too. Or, or, or Crystal, we noticed it too. Yeah, I was yeah. I was one of the senior residents on the team, and it was 
just on inpatient medicine, we're obviously working. And I think one of the big things that contributed to it was we as interns work with certain senior residents and you realize what things are helpful and one thing, what things you realize they would have done for you. So when you became a senior, Mm -hmm. um, when I was the second year, I try to embody everything to be the perfect senior to help my interns. So because of that, I I overexerted myself. I was doing a, a lot more than I should have. And I was there, you're working like um, 14 hours a day. And also the responsibility as a senior is, is a, a stress on, on you. So I just kind of became mm-hmm. this body and just absent. I would just look absently, that emotional, uh, I, I don't know how you describe it. Mm-hmm. I was emotionally absent mm-hmm. in a lot of things. And they would ask exactly, like, like how are you doing? And I'd uh-huh. be like, I'm fine. And people who know me, I'm a little crazy and loud and very, <laughs> very, <laughs> very energetic. Yeah. So those are key things when someone was not myself, right? Yeah, it was odd. Sometimes you would catch him yeah. like staring at the wall. And you're like, Miguel, are you okay? He's like, yeah, which is very odd. So whenever you start seeing odd behavior from someone, you, you question whether they really are okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was, it was nice when they sought out and then. You break down, you cry. Sometimes crying is so mm-hmm. healing. It is. <laughs> exactly. It is. Whether it's a necessity. It's on your yeah. own with somebody else. So that was that was such a an a great learning experience. And I share that with a lot of applicants too. Mm-hmm. To be honest and mm-hmm. transparent that you are faced with challenges, but that people are there to help you. And it was like from my co-resident, like my, like Crystal to the chiefs to the faculty who mm-hmm. reached out to help. So that was that was such a wonderful yeah. experience. That is amazing. And honestly, that's probably like really unique because I don't I feel like I don't really like see that kind of like commodity like within medicine. Mm-hmm. Not often. It's like very, very rare. I think I feel that people recognize it first off. Um and then like all band together to kind of address it and help each other out. Even though like how you said medicine is a team sport. So if one right. of us is down, like we have to kind of like pick up the pieces and like, you know, do what we can to make sure that person's okay. So then that we can all continue working um, efficiently yeah. as a team. Yeah. So thanks for, for sharing that part. Um, I wanted to touch on maybe just like a little bit of your, of your experience as a couple going through, through medical school and residency. Um, And then going through the match process too. I don't know if there's any kind of like tidbits that you can share. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I'll go first. (laughs) Um, I think it's been so wonderful, especially because we started from the beginning, literally out of high school, met each other in the beginning of college. So we really worked well together from the get go from studying together, going through courses together. We majored in the same major, physiological sciences. We did the same activities in college. So (laughs) we were basically the same. We merged into one, into the same person from the beginning. And it's just so, uh, it just goes to show how I I truly believe in the power of soulmates and that we met because we, we truly aligned in that sense and kind of our souls kind of just merged from from when we met, um, because the, we each have our own very unique personalities. Like we mentioned, Miguel is very extroverted, loud, hilarious, but loves to make people laugh. I'm more introverted. I love to listen to people. Very patient. <laughs> and, and, 
So we we compliment, compliment each other they're very well. But at the same time, we have that same like-mindedness and mission in terms of our lifelong goals. So to go through mm-hmm. college together was so amazing. And we each had our hardships, like we mentioned earlier, but we helped each other through them. We were there for each other um, through thick and thin and and through med school as well. In medical school, it was a, a bit of its own challenge because we were offset by a year. Miguel had started medical school first, so we were going through medical school in, at a different pace. So while Miguel was going through his mm-hmm. third year rotations, I was going through my second year rotations and going through step one studying. And so we were kind of on different um, uh, levels of our medical school training, which made things difficult in our respective timeframes, right? Because third year is challenging in its own way, but step one studying is uh, challenging in its own way as well. So once we went into our master's programs and were able to align, that's when we decided this is actually what's best for our future to be able to be together um, on the same page, on the same wavelength, and uh, try to match the same year so that we could go through residency together. And I think choosing our path uh, through the match was even more, uh, it was easier for us because of that same like-mindedness. We both realized that we loved family medicine, that we loved every aspect of full spectrum care from taking care of babies to pregnancy, labor and delivery, inpatient medicine, everything. We loved it. Uh, We loved uh, underserved medicine and and coming from our primal C upbringings, we wanted to be a part of a residency program that that felt the same, that had that family feel, and that was really active in the mm-hmm. community. And uh, ultimately, we saw ourselves practicing in a medically underserved area, whether it was through an FQHC or a county facility or um, a, any any place that made us feel like we were really contributing to our our underserved and Latino um, community. So with that said, I think it made it really streamlined when we were applying to residencies mm-hmm. and going through the match that uh, we mm-hmm. uh, uh, applied to and looked for programs that fit all of those criteria. And we mm-hmm. were fortunate enough back then when we were interviewing in person, <laughs> because this whole year has been through right. Zoom, but uh, back then we actually, uh, coordinated so that we can interview together on every single interview. Oh my god. <laughs> on every interview. So I don't know how that happened. It was stressful to fit, to logistically coordinate all of that, but we were able to visit each uh, program and interview together so that they also saw us as a couple matching together. Yeah. Uh, and I think that really helped to to fortify our our uh, combined applications and to show hey, we are very serious about your program we're serious about mm-hmm. couples matching and this is why because we're we're great applicants as a single applicant but we're excellent applicants together you mm-hmm. know and we could really contribute to your yeah. program so true and that logistical part of the co- coordinating interviews i remember during that time since i extended my mba into two i took several quarters off and i was just full-time at home with two laptops <laughs> one, one. Still in one for me. So when, <laughs> when we got an interview, I would like schedule at the same time, or sometimes I would email the the program and say, "Hey, I noticed 
Blink got an interview. I'm just wondering if my couple, mm-hmm. you know, just being, again, not being afraid to ask mm-hmm. and being very proactive. Again, and yeah. we every single uh-huh. interview we did interview as a couple. And then Crystal said, recognizing how you as an individual, what your strengths are, what your areas of development are, and then what you can offer as a couple, mm-hmm. because you are ultimately reviewed as an individual, but then you recognize mm-hmm. you're a couple as well. Mm-hmm. So if you kind of build and recognize what makes you individually and as a couple strong, that's how you can kind of leverage those things. So it, it was it was a stressful period, but since we knew exactly what we liked and we did not have conflicts amongst each other, yeah. or lo que sea, lo que sea, so we right. just kind of <laughs> we just uh, matched our our rank list identical all the way down and all we knew was that we as long as we're together that's where we want to be and we were just so fortunate that where we wanted to be is where we ended up here at Tulipita. Did you have to apply to like a certain number of programs um, in order to be sure that you match together? Did you only apply to like a specific region? That's a great question. So I remember (laughs) we met um, with our um, dean of students at the time, I believe. Um, who was meeting with every single uh, fourth year medical student. I think this is part of the process of preparing you for applying to residency and then giving you Mm -hmm. some guidance in terms of how many uh, programs to apply to. And when we sat down together as a couple, I remember this person mentioned, oh, you're going through the couples match. I would apply to at least 40 programs. And we were like, what? (laughs) Why would we apply to 40 programs? We're both going into family medicine. And not to mention a lot of coordination. I mean, you're still going through medical school. You're still a fourth year medical student. So you have to coordinate all of the days you have to take off for interviewing. And some schools are not as lenient as others. There are schools that give you some leeway time. Like you see Irvine was um, um, uh, very uh, generous in that sense that they gave us some time off to focus on interviewing, but not all schools are like that. And so you have to take into consideration cost, time, your effort. Interviewing is a lot of work and a lot of effort too. Mm-hmm. And and so for us thinking, you know, oh, we're, we're great applicants. We did well in medical school. Our numbers are good. Our extracurriculars are excellent and we're excellent together. And we want to go into family medicine. We thought we were uh, great applicants. So for somebody to say, oh, no, you have to think of backups and apply to 40. What if you don't match uh, together? You're going to get separated. And we just uh, didn't agree with that advice. Granted, that advice was coming from a person whose own subspecial or whose own specialty was very competitive. So I'm sure they were coming from mm-hmm. a place of worry in case we didn't match out of, you know, competition. But um, we talked to our own mentors who were also in family medicine and, and asked for their advice and what they would do. And in general, as a single applicant um, in family medicine, at the time, we were recommended to apply to about, you know, 15 programs or somewhere in the teens, right? 10 to 20 on average, mm-hmm. depending on what your interests were and whether you want to stay in state or out of state. And so we decided to apply roughly to that. I think in the end, we interviewed 18, at I interviewed 11, we interviewed 10. at about, yeah, 11 or so, somewhere around there programs and, and ranked those. And so in the end, we matched at 
at the program that we ultimately wanted to be at. Um, and we both stayed together, which I, I think speaks to going back when we started the process of applying, that we did feel confident and comfortable applying together and as a couple. And we, we thought that we would um, succeed through the year. And obviously there's always gonna be some advice that doesn't sit well with you, but always ask for more feedback, ask for a second opinion and reach out to those people that are in the specialty that you wanna go into for more detailed advice. I agree. So those programs that you applied to, were those all in California then? Uh, Yeah, and one out of state as well, but mostly in California and Southern California, because those were the programs that we saw fit most with our mission of, you know, uh, working with the local underserved community and and being involved. Um, We wanted a program that had a lot of community outreach, that whose residents were very active in the community, that had opportunities for all sorts of, of activism and, and extracurricular training as well. Mm-hmm. So that's how we came across GRIP. Um, and I was uh, lucky enough to do a fourth year sub-I when I was in medical school. We had heard lots of great things about this program from our friends and past Prime LC alumni. And so mm-hmm. I, I did a sub-I as a fourth year and absolutely loved it. I, I fell in love with the program, with its people, with the community, um, the faculty and staff and residents were so welcoming, so amazing. It, it felt like home. And, and so I came right. home and told Miguel all about it. I completely raved and said, this is, you're going to love it. This is where I feel like we fit in best. I think that's a really great transition for, because one of my questions that I wanted to ask you was um, about the family medicine residency at Scripps. Um, and since you are going to both be on faculty, I think who better to ask than fresh new faculty um, about the program. So um, if you want to kind of share a little bit about the program and you've already shared throughout throughout the, you know, the, the, the interview so much about it. And it sounds like such a great program, but um, I guess like just whatever else you haven't already said, but. Overall, I am getting the gist that it is an amazing program. Uh, it's, it's such a wonderful program. And, and like Crystal said, we heard about it by word of mouth. We, I, to be honest, had no idea where Chula Vista was when I was in medical school. But mm-hmm. all the UCI, UCI alumni were Chula Vista, Chula Vista. So then, obviously, after Crystal did a sub-I and now having done the program, it is so evident how this program embodies everything that it is. So it is located in Chula Vista, mm-hmm. which is... 15 or so, 10, 15 minutes north of the Tijuana border. So we are so close to Mexico here in Tijuana, which offers, and one of our strengths is border health. So we're a small community hospital, and our program is mainly stationed at Scripps Chula Vista Hospital here in Chula Vista, and our surrounding FQHC system is San Isidro Health. So as residents, we do our continuity clinic site is through San Isidro, and uh, for inpatient mm-hmm. medicine, we mainly are at Scripps de la Vista, but we still do a lot of rotations in nearby hospitals like Radies Children's or Scripps Hillcrest, etc. But in that sense, mm-hmm. we're, it's a, a three-year family medicine program, community-based, full spectrum, and you get a strong OB women's health experience. Whether residents are passionate about mm-hmm. it or not, you still get an extremely well uh, training a really good training in, in obstetrics. 
low risk, but we still do mm-hmm. high risk with our community OB as well. Another huge strength of our program is the community-based aspect. Starting from day one, you, your first rotation is community medicine, and you and your cohort, similar to Prime LC, that mm-hmm. summer where you just bond. It's a it's a month of bonding, happiness, transition, yeah. celebration. <laughs> you have that as a as a resident from day one you just meet your cohort you're bonding you you have community tours you learn what resources you have in your surrounding clinics you start with one patient in your clinic then the next week you go to two it's this amazing sense of transition that was so reassuring and comforting because i i would have been terrified from day one starting in the hospital so that was a great transition point in, in that emphasis of community medicine. And then also for us, what we needed and must have was medically underserved, particularly Latino community. And Chula Vista is that, again, the border is a few miles south. People either live here and work in Tijuana or they live in Tijuana and work here. So you have that binational health. A lot of our patients are monolingual Spanish speaking, many uninsured, a large medical population. FQHC, it's like boom, boom, boom. We checked our boxes down. And then the other thing Mm -hmm. was the mentorship and community outreach. When we interviewed, we were very strategic and and purposeful in asking what what type of outreach opportunities do you have as a resident? And here, not only do you have time for outreach, but it's in your curriculum, whether it's going to a clinic in Tijuana, whether you go to elementary, middle, middle school or high school for I don't know, nutrition topics, sexual um, health talks. It's in your rotations for you to go and do these things that we always crave doing in our extracurriculars. So the fact that the program emphasized that in the curriculum was so so reassuring and on our side to say, wow, they value it. And that means a lot. And then others. They're not only like speaking it, they're like, they put it in paper, it's in there. Like there's proof that they actually, you know, do value it what they're actually mm-hmm. so that's great what yeah, about, ultimately what? i feel like residency training should be tailored to what you feel you need for your future career goal so however you envision yourself practicing after residency look for a residency program that gives you those tools so that you have those to practice with so for example knowing that we wanted to work with an f2hc well of course we want to work with a residency program that works in an F2HC so that we start acquiring those skills of how to navigate an F2HC system, how to find resources for our uninsured patients, how to you know form our network so that we're better uh, clinicians for our patients. Uh, but also, if we envision ourselves being physician leaders and advocates in our community, incorporating you know these, these outreach uh, opportunities into our curriculum, facilitates that. So I think that's so, so important that if you foresee yourself being uh, one of those physicians who, aside from having your own practice, you're also active and, you know, part of committees and part of the community, then you you need that training in residency too, to start, start that movement going and, and start uh, kick off your training in that sense. Mm-hmm. For me also, it's, uh, the mentors that you work with and look up to, um, the faculty, the staff, the alumni, what do they look like? How are they practicing now? Because that could be kind of a reflection of, of where you're going to be in their shoes. Mm-hmm. 
And when I mm-hmm. met the faculty, when we met our, our faculty, I just fell in love with, with each and every one of them because they each have their own passion and, and contribute to the mission of the program. They've been involved with mm-hmm. our local community for decades throughout the whole span of their career. Some of them are very involved with our, you know, geriatrics programs in our area and our nursing homes. Um, some of them are involved with our school districts, with our local government and city councils. Um, a lot of them have very strong ties and connections to other community clinics and specialties. So they just, they they literally walk the walk. <laughs> they, they show what it's uh-huh. like to be a, a family physician leader in your local community. And when I saw them, I was yeah. like, that's how I envision myself later on in my career. And I know Miguel um, does too. And so to be in a place to learn from, from people that have dedicated their life uh, of service, that's, that's where I, I wanted to be. So. Mm-hmm. so true. Wow. That's like, this sounds really great. Oh my gosh. I think, I, I don't know if you know, but I also do want to go Yay, into telemedicine. <laughs> all about your program i'm like oh wow um the border health so is that like a clinic that you have already set up there or or how does that work uh it's hbit which is health frontiers in tijuana and that's been going on for many years as well an established curriculum as residents we go down once a month we used to prior to the pandemic Mm -hmm. literally walk across the border it's within a few blocks of the actual border and for that morning on a saturday we provide pretty much medical care to or any patients in that area, many of them who are homeless or a lot of Haitian uh, refugees. A lot of uh, big refugee population. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in a, in a way it is in some form of continuity because we do see patients who come regularly. They do have that clinic, it's a soup kitchen. They do have that clinic weekly, but we as residents go once a month. And now even though they're, we mm-hmm. don't, the border physically we still have virtual zoom meetings where we can still participate in the clinic with the doctor that is down in Tijuana so that is that is one oh. one continuity site and then for that month of community medicine prior to the first month of your intern year we also go to San Quintin which is another well-established location just in Baja California where we work with pretty much every year is a little bit different but we work with the community center there we do talks with either promotoras or the community. We volunteer at the clinic there. And it's also a great uh, time to also to continue bonding with your cohort and the faculty. And it goes to show that the ties, I think ultimately, um, the, the ties that you have with other community members and partnerships is so important. So for example, HBIT is a collaboration between UCSD Public Health undergraduate program and also UABC, the Universidad de Baja California in Tijuana. So it's a collaboration between these three partners in Scripps residency to, to provide these um, clinics for, for the local community there. Um, and with San Quintin, um, San Quintin is about five to six hours south of the border. It's in a more rural community. Uh, you work with a lot of uh, migrant uh, uh, a large, largely migrant population and uh, farm working community as well. It, that area, just as a 
a side note, that area has one of the largest uh, farm working networks for berries, like Driscoll raspberries and a lot of produce comes from San Quentin. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so you get to work with a very unique uh, farm working uh, community there. And we work at one of their community sites. So these are all because of partnerships that have been built through the residency since its inception, um, you know, almost two decades ago. And I think that that just fortifies the training for residents that that come train with us. That is amazing. This Wow. It's like they literally talk the talk and walk the walk. Like, that is so great. Um, really great. I'm glad that you were able to, like, share more about the program and hopefully encourage some more of our listeners to to apply to the program and such. Um, I, I usually like to end the, the podcast episode with some just kind of like encouraging words to the listeners. Um, you already throughout the whole episode, you provided such great, great advice and great words of encouragement. Um, but I guess if there's any, just any kind of like last minute thoughts that you, that you want to share now would be the great time to, mm-hmm. to do so. Okay. We wrote some of these points down <laughs> We, we thought this was probably the most important question that you asked us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess we could go through two main points. Mm-hmm. We could each go through them. But w- one of them was actually one that I learned from a men- from a rotating community faculty during med school. And he, on the last day of, ro- of rotating with him, told me, remember, don't postpone happiness. And he just left me with that. And, and in my mind, like, what does that mean? But <laughs> later on, you realize that a lot of times in our in our journey, we at various points are waiting for something to be done to then finally be happy and relax and celebrate. After step one, I'll I'll get to finally see my family. After blank, I'll finally be able to do this. And I think one thing I learned throughout this whole process that I'm still trying to apply is not to wait for a particular moment or day to be happy. And it doesn't mean, of course, like every day I'm going to go on vacation, <laughs> but it's like mentally <laughs> reward yourself with happiness that you have uh, completed something or accomplished something, whether it's a rotation, like I finished my surgery rotation, or today I finished a long call that was challenging. I need to reward myself with something as opposed to waiting for those milestones that could delay that innate feeling of fulfillment and happiness. Mm-hmm. It sometimes can harm us. To, to delay that. So, um, of course, when you do reach a milestone, you have time off and you, that's when we can finally travel. Hopefully we can physically travel soon. But that's one thing that I think is important to keep in mind because this, this path is lifelong, uh, regardless of what stage you're in. And moments are challenging at various times. Life happens, mm-hmm. especially now with the, with the pandemic. It is extremely hard uh, with many of our Essentially, families, friends being affected. So, being well from the from the get go is so important. And realizing that where you are, focusing on those fortunes and grateful and being grateful for the things that we do have. For example, one of our uh, major decisions during our career was uh, figuring out when we wanted to get married, and we were engaged for six years <laughs> because we're. Yeah, yes. oh <laughs> we were engaged for a long time, basically med school. med school, and kept trying to figure out, well, when is a good time? Should we wait until after death? Should we wait until after this? We ultimately ended up getting married just right before graduation uh, during fourth year of medical school at the very end. 
And at that point, we still also probably questioned, oh, should we wait till after residency? But then we felt ready. We felt, you know, content in that point of our lives that we we wanted to get married. We wanted our families to be with us. And we got married and never regretted it. It was probably the best day of our of our life so far and the highlight uh, of our year that year mm-hmm. and to this day. So in that moment, we decided we do not want to postpone happiness. We may not have all the money to to uh, upfront a wedding right now. And yes, I won't lie that we were in debt for quite a bit through our <laughs> intern year, but <laughs> Worth it. it was post-wedding debt. And many, <laughs> many people might be like, well, that's totally not worth it. But in our minds, it was worth it at that time. And eventually we got through that debt and now in our are in a stable situation where we can go and uh, think of the next milestone in our life or the next thing that we want to accomplish together as a family. So with that said, it's so important to whenever you feel ready and you you feel like it's going to bring you fulfillment and happiness, do it in that moment. And the, the other thing that we wanted to mention is that know that you're unique. Know that you have a set of qualities and, and have something to, to, to give to our community. And a lot of times we go through our careers thinking that we're not unique, that we're not special, that I'm trying to, you know, get noticed. I, I want people to see me, but people are seeing you, you are unique and, and embrace all of those qualities that you have that really bring something to the table and ultimately are going to be a change in our community and for your own patients. Um, Embrace all of the uniqueness that you have to offer and use that as your motivation. Don't, don't change or don't doubt yourself always keeps driving to highlight those qualities in you so that others can see them. And ultimately, uh, when you have your practice and when you're working with your community and you're a doctor and and taking care of your patients, that's just going to outshine and your patients are going to love you for it, for that Mm -hmm. uniqueness that you bring to them. Wow. Both of you, that like touched me, (laughs) touched my heart. That's such great words of advice. And I like as you were talking through them, I was just like reflecting on my own, like, oh, I definitely have had those instances where I'm like, okay, after this, I'm going to do this. Like, and it's just like, if you keep doing that, you're just eventually never going to do anything that makes you happy because there's always going to be something else that Mm -hmm. you have to do. Um, Unfortunately, on this path, it's just the way it is. So those are really great. And with that said, paying it forward to others too and uplifting each other. And noticing those unique qualities in, in your colleagues and somebody else mm. and letting them know, hey, yeah. you are excellent at this. Your patients are going to yes. love you for that, you mm-hmm. know, and to, saying the same to ourselves. Like, I have this quality. Mm. I'm a great listener. And you know what? I bring such a great listening quality to my patient encounters. My patients mm-hmm. really appreciate that about me. So find those unique qualities yeah. about yourself and highlight them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love the title of, <laughs> of your podcast. I look like a doctor. It reminds me of a particular moment in intern year where I was at one of the hospitals, outside hospitals, rotating. And again, the whole imposter syndrome. I saw myself walking down the hall in those fishbowl mirrors with my white coat. It's like, 
con el viento swing and I was like, oh my God, I'm a doctor. Even though I'm, I, I doubt myself and I'm afraid, but I am a doctor right now and I will be. And you too, Crystal, the other day, you had a moment walking in labor and delivery where you... Oh yeah, it was such a surreal moment. So when I was in high school, I used to volunteer at a maternity ward. I used to stock the formulas in the mother-baby unit. And for me, it was such a great time because uh -huh. I would see babies in the nursery and it was just so fulfilling. And at that moment is when, or during that time is when I realized I wanted to go into healthcare and, and become a doctor specifically. And now, years later, over a decade later, going through all of the, the work and the effort, the tears, the blood, the sweat, everything that you go through to become a doctor, um, a lot of times we forget it because we're in the rush of the moment. Like, I need to get to the next step. I need to get to residency. I need to graduate residency. I have all these calls. Um, and the other day, I was now, we practiced um, uh, OB, labor and delivery. Um, and I was mm -hmm. walking through the halls to get to a patient room. And I just got this like huge sense of deja vu. But I pictured myself where I was stalking the, the formula, the maternity ward back when I was in high school and, and when we were um, volunteers in undergrad. And then I just got a flashback to today. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> I can't believe I went from stocking formula to now I am delivering babies and I'm about to go see a patient right now and her baby. And it, it almost brought me to tears. I had to contain myself because I, <laughs> I was about to go into a room. Yeah. But I don't know why yeah. in that moment in time, my brain decided to give me that flashback and that deja vu. But I acknowledged it and I accepted it. And I took it for what it was. And I said, you know what? My brain is telling me something. It's telling me to look back and appreciate how far mm -hmm. I've come and to really motivate yeah. myself to go forward in this moment. So true. Appreciate yourself. And when you see yourself in the mirror, you, you, if you want to be a doctor, and unlike me, I'm kind of pre-med. If you <laughs> know you want to be a doctor, <laughs> Do it. You, you look in the mirror and tell yourself that you look like one and you yes. will be one. Appreciate everything that you've done. Thank you both so much for, for joining us on this episode today. Um, I think this is one of probably like all of them have been great. So I can't even say like, but this has been a really great time talking to you and you both have such wonderful stories to share. Wonderful stories. So thank you so much for, for joining you, me Sarah. today. Thank you for having us, Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to the I Look Like a Doctor podcast. If you would be so kind as to leave us a review on your listening platform, it would really help us to get the show out to more people. As a special incentive, if you have a question for the next physician guest or myself, feel free to leave that question in your review. Or as an alternative, you can also screenshot your review and email that to I look like a doctor at gmail.com along with your question. Thank you.